Welcome to my Super Title Life, an ongoing blogcast about my personal experiences in working with the San Diego Opera Chorus. This is Episode 1, Curtain Up. If you were to ask someone on the street about Richard Wagner, they probably would have no knowledge of his music. However, if you played them this piece, they'd instantaneously know what the melody was. It's a shame, really, because Wagner has actually permeated our lives in many, many ways. And in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so maybe you don't recognize it fully in this form. Maybe you remember it like this. I'm hunting rabbits. Wabbit wikes. Kill the wabbit! I thought that might get your attention. So, you do know who Wagner is, and you do have an idea of what his music sounds like. And actually, you know more of it than you think you know. Or maybe you do. What we're going to talk about today is my current involvement in our uh, current production of Tannhäuser, which is going up with the San Diego Opera starting at the end of January. And um, I've uh, really kind of enjoyed the experience thus far. We actually started uh, our rehearsals on December 4th, um, and we the men practiced their chorus sections before we brought in the women and work jointly and right now we're in the process of putting the whole show together jointly musically um we haven't staged anything yet so right now it's just the music that we're working on and um what i'm finding is that it's a tremendous amount of work um uh, you know i always knew that wagner was demanding but i never realized how much demanding uh the music was uh, now that i'm in the middle of it it's you feel like you've run a marathon every time you end a rehearsal session so it's it's quite amazing uh, the music is very precise, it's very lush, um, it has amazing harmonics and dynamics, um, and there's a lot of color in Wagnerian operas, which um, I always kind of knew, but never really got to experience it fully f uh, for myself until I started doing it. Um, the chorus is rather large. We have 84 people in the chorus, which is a very large chorus. Um, we have uh, some 20-odd dancers that are in the Venusberg opening sequence, which we'll get to in a minute. And we have 
uh, stagehands and lighting people and and uh, stage manager and you know chorus master and all these people that are going to be backstage along with us and the sets and the principals. So it's quite an amazingly large cast uh, for this production. But I think that it's going to be quite uh, rewarding when we finally get it up on its feet. Interestingly enough, the show is actually going to be on a raked stage, which should prove kind of interesting because uh, we will have to, when we're making the pilgrimage as chorus members to Rome, when we're climbing the mountains, our stage is actually sloped, so actually we will be sort of climbing to get to where we need to go. Tannhäuser is an interesting story. Um, it actually is, at the root of its story, the complete analysis between... Uh, two facets of love the profane or the sensual and, and flesh uh, fleshy part of love and uh, the pious which is more the deeper meaning of love and in a lot of Wagnerian operas there is a duality that goes on in a lot of his pieces and in this moral tale that he's chosen he actually works those two sides and in fact the uh, chorus between the men's and the women's chorus in the two separate sections they sound a lot alike, and that's due to this Madonna whore complex that, that he has working in it, where uh, you have a pious uh, individual, but they think like a whore. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting premise. But anyways, um, so a lot of the choruses sound alike. Uh, the women's chorus, when you first hear them, and uh, I'll begin that in just a second, will take a note of how they sound and the color they sound and what they have going on, and then we'll mig migrate our way through the, the opening pieces and we'll get to when the men enter as pilgrims after Tannhäuser has been cast out of Andersburg. And uh, so you'll hear the women's chorus and the sirens and the way that they sing, and they sound an awful lot like when the men make an entrance, and it has the same timbre, the same color to the sound. So it's kind of interesting because you will get this duality going on throughout the whole thing. And in, in fact, what makes it kind of interesting is that historically, the roles of Venus, or Venus as we know her, the, uh, pre, um, the actual Venus, the, the pre-Christian uh, goddess of love from Roman mythology, and uh, Elizabeth, who is the pious girl in Act 2 and 3 that we get to meet, um, they are historically were played by the same woman. And this was part of that Madonna whore complex, that uh, the same uh, actress, the same singer, actually sang both parts because they're never on stage at the same time. You either see the profane or you see the pious. Never the two shall meet. Uh, until the very end when uh, Tannhäuser actually calls out to Venus one last time and she makes a brief appearance in the end of the, of the whole piece. But we'll get to that when we talk about Act 3. But typically that role was played by the same woman. Now, because Wagner is so demanding, um, they've had to actually make it easier on the soloists, um, the lead singers, because the uh, there have been many, many very great singers who have actually damaged their voice in the course of doing a production run of, of uh, Tannhäuser, as well as some of the other Wagnerian operas. They were just so demanding. I can't stress that enough. You really feel like you've, uh, you've done a lot of work when you uh, work on a Wagner piece. But anyways, but I digress. Uh, this, what you're listening to now that's been playing underneath uh, my little uh, explanation here is the actual opening overture to Tannhäuser. And uh, it has some of the themes that you will hear repeated over and over throughout the piece. And in fact, uh, some of the themes will change the words, but the melodies will still be the same. And it's because as the story progresses, if a certain... Um, 
psychological theme comes to play in the show, you, that theme in the music mirrors it and the orchestra brings it back out and the, and the singers follow suit. So you kind of can't get lost in Tannhäuser. It's a pretty simple story. Um, it's a very moralistic story. Um, and we are singing it in the traditional German. Um, and uh, so I think that you'll really kind of like it. So now we're going to move away from the overture that you've been listening to. And we're going to listen to the first part where the women sing. Uh, it's the chorus entry. You never actually see them because all that's on stage is um, the ballet dancers uh, in the midst of a Bacchanalian orgy. Uh, now, there are two things that are controversial about Tannhäuser right from the get-go. The first thing is Wagner was notorious... Um, for uh, taking, he was kind of the Walt Disney of his time. He would take historical figures and fairy tale figures and all kinds of things, and he would mash them all together and mix them up and for his own doing. So unfortunately, um, a lot of the historians and the literati of the time really did not like uh, Wagner mucking around with this kind of thing. So what he ended up doing was... Um, he did not only that, he only, not only broke the rule that way, but secondly, and probably more importantly because it caused actual riots when he did this, was that um, most people at this point had expected that if there was going to be a ballet or a dance sequence in the production, it's usually in Act 2. And uh, social-wise, a lot of people never went to Act 1 to a lot of these plays. They would sit in restaurants and linger and have a big meal and whatever, and then they make their way because they knew that the dance sequence, the ballet sequence, the big, big number was always going to be in Act 2, so they would show up for that. Well, Wagner broke that rule, and he had the opening sequence is the ballet. So um, it caused quite a stir when it was shown in Paris. Um, and uh, we'll get to more about the actual uh, riotous background behind Tannhäuser. But, um, so the opening sequence is a dance sequence. Uh, you never see the women as sirens. You just hear them. They're off stage, and they have this very haunting piece that plays. So we're going to listen to that now. And then, uh, But what I want you to pay attention to is that as you listen to the women sing that part, kind of remember that color, that, 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 the way that they sound. Um, that's what I mean by color. It's kind of a dark, haunting kind of straight tone that you're getting there. And then when the men enter a little bit later in the same act, because we're going to cover act one in this episode. When the men enter, you'll actually hear that same sort of sound from a male voice. So again, the profane versus the pious. So here is the opening number to um, Tannhäuser. And uh, this one is in Venusburg. It is during the Bacchanalian orgy that's going on. Um, and uh, let's give a listen to it. From Wagner Without Fear, there's a comment by the author that says, um, Wagner's libretto summary of the ballet is extended and detailed and hilarious. Apparently, a thorough knowledge of classical mythology is considered a prerequisite for attending an orgy in his day. Most modern productions try to go the other way and outdo each other in sheer raunch. In any case, there are many dancers chasing each other and running around on stage to a very frenzied music for about ten minutes. Even castanets are heard in the orchestra, which must have signified utter depravity in Northern European audiences. 
one of the things that they do recommend that uh, given some of the more modern uh, interpretations of this dance uh, is that they said if you're not liking the dance so far uh, when you start to see it then just close your eyes and enjoy the music because the music is really quite haunting and quite beautiful um, but some of the more modern uh, versions of the uh, uh, choreography actually bordered on really being pornographic so uh, heads up about that Okay, so now we move on, and uh, unfortunately, Venus, who is lying there in the uh, middle of all this, uh, commanding her legions to partake of the flesh as she has, um, Tannhäuser is laying next to her. Now, he um, was a minstrel, a fighting knight, and a singing knight, as they all were in Germany at this time, I'm sure. And um, he's lounging there with her, and he's partaking of this fleshy life for quite some time and she makes the fatal mistake as some women do in their relationships and turns to him and says what are you thinking and of course she really doesn't want to know what he's thinking at this point because he's had it he's kind of done with this whole sex 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 kind of thing um i know that's strange to hear from a man but you know again this is a pious story so you know we're gonna go with it suspension of belief anyways um that's what theater's all about so uh, he tells her that he doesn't want to be here. So they have a little tete a back and forth kind of thing. And eventually at some point she says, well, kind of of this. Why don't you sing for me? And that'll take your mind off of it. So he does. He dutifully gets up and grabs his little harp and he starts to sing. Well, unfortunately, um, that is not the end of it. Um, in the middle of it, he then, in the middle of his song, he then turns to her and starts to reiterate he wants out. And so she has nothing of it, and she gets her panties in a twist. So here's the first part where she kind of sort of just mm, very, very mildly turns to him and notices that he has a pensive look on his face, and she says, well, what's wrong? And uh, the answer she gets is not something she really wants to hear. So here's that opening sequence.
So now she gets her panties in a twist, and she says, fine. If you don't want to be here, go. Get out. Leave. I'm going to banish you to the cold world of men, and you're going to find out that what you had here was far better than anything you'll get anywhere else. And he does what any red-blooded man would do, visited with an ultimatum, and he turns on her and says, fine, I will go. And then, of course, she panics and says, no, don't go. Stay. And, and you know, I'll do everything you want. And... He says, no, I've had it. I'm out of here. You told me to leave. I'm going. And she keeps begging him to stay. And then she gets mad at him and says, fine, go. You know, and so they have this back and forth kind of thing going on, which is what you're going to hear in the next little piece I'm going to play. And then at the very end, when she thinks she may have a chance to keep him there, he finally turns on her completely and calls on the Blessed Virgin Mary. And at the mere mention of her name, Venusburg disappears and our... Uh, Tannheuser, our central character, is left in the middle of Wartburg in Germany in this beautiful little lush um, valley. And he's next to a boy playing on a flute uh, in the middle of the valley singing this little song about the month of May. So first part we're going to hear is the argument between Venus and um, Tannheuser. And then it's going to leave them when he calls on Mary then Venusberg disappears and he's left in the valley. And now, when the valley part starts to play, you're going to hear the pilgrims enter. This is the men's chorus that I was talking about. When the men's chorus enters, you'll notice they sound a lot alike the female chorus that sang as sirens in the profane part at the beginning of the show. So this is that duality that's coming into play. Let's give a listen. Oh, my God. 
Venusberg disappears. Now enter the men's chorus and just pay attention to the way that they're sounding and you'll see that their tone, though male, is a lot like the women who sing in the beginning of Sirens. This is the profane versus the pious.
And so after hearing all of this, Tannhäuser is convinced that he's done the right thing, and uh, he's lamenting a bit because he thinks he's lived such a profane life that he'll never be accepted. And uh, just as he's about to worry about it a lot, um, he hears the hunting horns in the distance that signal that his friends are about to arrive. back and forth talk with his friends when he talks to them they say well come up to the castle come on you need to come back to the castle with us and he begs off and thinking that once they find out what he's been up to that they'll shun him so he'd rather do them the favor now so uh, they convince him to come by uh, one of them one of his lo- closest friends actually turns to him and says but don't you remember Elizabeth and how much she really liked to have you around and at the mention of her name all of his pretense drops and he realizes he needs to go and see her because this is the woman obviously that he has traded this wild life for is this young girl that he did remember from the castle so he goes off with his friends at the end of act one and uh, now we're going to listen to a little bit of um, the men trying to convince Tannhäuser to go and then at the very end when he hears Elizabeth's name he suddenly remembers her and says okay I'll go so that's the end of act one Oh, no. 
And now before I leave you, I wanted to leave you with a couple of uh, brief little historical anecdotes about Tannhäuser that are actually a little amusing. Um, it seems that there was at one time a very stout woman by the name of Hilda Concini uh, who was singing Venus in Tannhäuser in Vienna. And her overblown form was draped across the couch, prompted one American spectator to ask another in the audience rather loudly, so when do you think the balloon will go up? Obviously referring to her. Uh, there are all kinds of cute little stories, and I think that's one of the misnomers about opera. A lot of people perceive opera as being very staunch and very, very classically oriented, and therefore, you know, you need to be ever so pious and sacred about opera. But what they fail to realize is that in Europe, this is the popular form of theater. Um, it, 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 it was not unheard of it, it, for people to respond and say something back to the actors on stage, and it often happened. Uh, and it still does in Europe. So it's kind of interesting because these colorful stories about Tannhäuser are actually very, very amusing, and they actually hold up over time. Um, there's another one here uh, about Tannhäuser that I wanted to read to you. And this one says, uh, this is actually regarding Act 1, and it's often known that uh, for Tannhäuser, it's kind of interesting. You never really have periods of time where it's slow and people fall asleep, but uh, Italians typically don't like German opera, and Germans typically don't always respond to Italian opera, so it's kind of a given kind of thing between the two countries. Well, here is a brief little historical note that's kind of amusing. Um, it says, For most Italians, Tannhäuser is far out in at least three ways. It's few too short in melodies, far too short in action, and far, far too long. Spectators in Florence were either impatiently on edge or asleep by 1 a.m. when the Pilgrim's Chorus, the part you just heard, was first seen on stage. Uh, Everyone still alive down there, came the solicitous inquiry from the top of the theater. Another voice chimed in, can't they march faster? Don't they know it's after one? And uh, I think that there are times in, uh, in Tannhäuser um, that just it might feel a little bit like that. But the thing is with Tannhäuser is that nothing in Tannhäuser actually lasts for very long. Just about the time that you think it's going to go slow, then a big fast never comes through and, and it carries you through. So it's actually the sh one of the shortest operas that um, Wagner wrote. Uh, it's probably, I think, uh, one of the most interesting from a musical point of view. Um, and I definitely think that it's, it's something that uh, you should definitely take time out to go see if you get a chance to. Um, so with that in mind, we will wrap up this week's episode in uh, my little uh, blogcast on working with the San Diego Opera in their current production of Tannhäuser, which is going up at the end of January in 2008. Um, there are a couple of other uh, little anecdotes I'll share with you historically that I've researched and found that are actually sort of amusing. Um, but, you know, just realize that this is, uh, this is the rock music of its era. This was the popular music. And it's actually kind of funny, and it's actually also a, 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 an unknown secret, unless you work in the industry, that, you know, you see people like um, Steve Tyler and, and, all, and, and uh, Mick Jagger and all the famous, you know, old-time rock stars who had really wild lives. They actually have mirrored counterparts in the opera world. Um, the opera world is kind of bizarre at times. Uh, and at some point in time, I'll, I'll share with you some of the little hidden secrets that I know about uh, the opera world um, that are kind of uh, amusing and, and border on the bizarre. So they can be just as outrageous as rock stars, and, and most of them generally are. And I think part of what, I, what I've kind of 
figured out for myself is I think it's because the music is so disciplined that it takes a really quirky person to to be able to do it and pull it off um, and, and to be dedicated towards it. So it's kind of in the same mind as how people think uh, computer programmers aren't very social, that they're very socially inept, but they're amazing at what they do. Well, it's kind of the same mentality. Classical artists tend to be a little quirky in the personality department, a little bit out there, and it's a balance because their their actual work is so structured, they just kind of have an outlet and it's in their personalities, which is why you get the diva personalities and you get the big... Uh, tenor personalities that are that are very famous. So, anyways, all of that to say, I uh, hope you join me next week. This is Bill, and I'm signing off with my super title life for this week, and I hope you join me next week when we'll investigate Act 2 of Tunnels. Thanks. Bye-bye. My Super Title Life is a production of Aquagon Media Studios, and its opinions are that of its author and editor, and not of the San Diego Opera or any other organization mentioned in this episode. If you wish to reach Bill at My Super Title Life, you can contact him via email at mysupertitlelife at aquagon.com. And that's My Super Title Life, all one word, M-Y-S-U-P-E-R-T-I-T-L-E-L-I-F-E, at aquagon.com and that's a-k-w-e-k-o-n.com